0: Greetings and
1: salutations. You've successfully arrived at the bloody, disgusting network. The passage of time will now bring you to something strange, unique,
0: and idiosyncratic. Have a good time. Hey everyone, Rockin' Randall here. Today we are unlocking our interview from last year with writer Meg Elison about her fantasy magazine article, All the King's Women... The Fats. It's a really, really enlightening chat. Meg is awesome. Uh, and if you like this chat, head over to the Barons patreoncom slash Barons and become a patron for even more interviews like this. We've spoken to David Morse, Glenn Mazzara, Fraser Heston, Scott Wood, so many names. In addition to these chats, you'll get access to hundreds upon hundreds of hours, and that's not an exaggeration. We literally have that much of exclusive content. We also haven't unlocked from our in-depth archival series that goes deep into King's uncollected works, to our Dark Tower Detour spinoff series with the Dans, to Jen's King's Character Corner, to me and Mel's Halloween Hell, to Talkin' Hawkins, Crichton Cast, The Soul's Midnight. It's a lot of content. So join up. For now, though, enjoy this episode, and I'll be seeing you over long days and pleasant nights. hey everyone rockin randall here today we've got author and critic meg elison on the pod to expound upon a recent essay they wrote in fantasy magazine called the fats it's part of an ongoing series uh called all the king's women and it confronts boldly something we've discussed often on this podcast that there's something nasty about the way king writes fat characters we'll link to it in the bio I really love this conversation, which isn't a takedown of any kind, but rather a good faith effort to recognize and reckon with an uncomfortable pattern that courses through so many stories that we love. I hope you dig it. Well, I'd love to just kick things off. I'd love to just for our listeners to learn a little bit more about you. Um, I know you're a writer. I know you're an editor. Uh, tell them a little bit about, you know, your work and um, and uh, what you're up to these days and where they can find you.
1: So my name is Meg Ellison I'm a novelist, primarily of science fiction, but also fantasy and horror. Like most genre writers, I'm kind of all over the place. <laughs> I have five books out, six ones coming out in August this year, very excited about that. I also write a great deal of short stories and nonfiction essays in particular. You can find me just about anywhere under my real name. I write on feminism, the body, horror as a genre, science fiction as a genre, and cultural criticism of all kinds. I've won a couple of awards. I won the Philip K. Dick Award, I won the Locus Award. I've been nominated for the Nebula, the Sturgeon, the Hugo, and the otherwise, but have not won any of those yet. In time. In time.
0: Uh, So tell us a little bit about your relationship to Stephen King. Uh, When did you start reading King? And, uh, you know, like, because I get the the vibe from your essay that you are a fan of King.
1: I'm a huge fan. I'm absolutely a constant reader. Yeah. Uh, Like a lot of people, I got introduced to King through mass-produced paperbacks that were available in the 80s and 90s. And I grew up very poor, so I bought books from the thrift store all the time. And it was... 50 cents in paperback, a dollar in hardback, so they were easy to accumulate. So I was reading them out of order and without context. I read The Wastelands before I read Gunslinger or Drawing of the Three.
0: Oh, that's interesting, yeah.
1: The Wastelands is so good, and it was so incredibly intriguing, and I had no idea what I was looking at, and it just (laughs) sucked me in. So after that, I picked up anything that had Stephen King's name on the cover, which it turned out was a lot of books, even back then.
0: yeah. And
1: he was exactly the kind of writer that I wanted to be. And I knew that looking at it even back then, this was before I had really any education, any literary pretension. I just loved how he made me see things and feel things. And I thought, man, I could do that.
0: Yeah. yeah Yeah. i think a lot of people on the podcast have very because a lot of us are writers as well and we have very similar stories and that you know it was the first available books that we had to us you can find them just about anywhere and they shape so much of our perceptions of the world uh which is so wild what was the first book you read by king we always love to ask people that
1: i think my first one was the wastelands oh wow that's
0: so interesting i feel like everybody we talk to they have a different one, which is so fun Um, mine was, uh, was The Stand, um, but yeah, I know, which was cool, and it was because of the miniseries in the 90s, I was obsessed with that, and that's kind of what got me into it, but then, after that, it was random, it was, like, Christine, and then The Dead Zone, and then Mm -hmm. The Shining, like, it took me, uh, I missed a lot of the, um, like, Carrie I didn't get to until much, much later. Me
1: neither, Uh, it was one of the, one of the later ones that I found, and I, I only, became aware of the the fact that he was still publishing, because like, I discovered a lot of writers after they had died, uh, because of the fervor around the Green Mile. Oh, yeah, people talking about him publishing chapbooks. And there was all this buzz around it. And I was like, wait, that guy's still alive. He's still (laughs) doing this. I was a baby. I didn't know any better.
0: Totally. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, What are some of your favorites? Like when you think about King, what are the books that stand out as as uh, ones that were an inspiration or just ones that are fun that you perhaps have revisited?
1: I've revisited a lot. I'm a rereader. Uh, yeah. I have it. I reread everything. I reread the stand every year and mm. reading it during the pandemic was a real trip. Oh my <laughs> yeah. God. We did a lot of content. <laughs> the stand I think is one of his best. Uh, it is four fifths, a perfect novel. And then the final fifth is a fucking embarrassment. <laughs> I, as a writer, I love on writing and uh, for people who I know won't get into King, I often recommend that I'm like, this is his nonfiction and it's really good. And the, uh, the advice on writing, Although he exists at an economic scale that's impossible for any writer to dream of at this point, including yeah. his very first advance, it's still good <laughs> advice. And then the other half of his writing advice, and I think one of his best books is in misery. Oh, misery God. is it's about it's about recovery, but it's also about being a writer. Absolutely. There's a, a stream of consciousness section where he talks about what it's like to get a story and get it right. And he ends with the lyrics to don't stop till you get enough. <laughs> I mean, his books have made me feel like I'm on drugs. That section makes me feel like sex. Like he is unstoppably great. So yeah, I would say The Stand. I would say Misery. I think Carrie is a work of genius and betokened his entire career. Yeah. I have a lot of affection for some of his lesser known works. I love Cycle the Werewolf and I've seen a lot of YouTubers rank it among his worst books. Oh, that's weird. We love that it's one. Not, it's really good. It's It's juvenile. They're not wrong that it's juvenile, but I think it's great.
0: Yeah yeah uh so when did you start to kind of notice the way he wrote about bodies in particular
1: not right away yeah i i read i read king from a very early age so when i say i was unaware of these things i mean i was unaware of these things in life not just in his work i think i started reading him when i was eight or nine so i was Advanced enough in my comprehension of vocabulary to follow the books, but not enough to analyze them really at all, just to yeah. be along for the ride. So I started to realize how he wrote about bodies. I think about the time I read It. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I read It when I was 11 or 12. So I had, like a lot of uh, AFAB Americans, started puberty very early and was aware of my own development. So reading about Bev's development was beyond uncomfortable because <laughs> of the, yeah. the way that he always has a magnifying glass on it like yikes! Oh, yeah and then uh the way that he takes apart fat people in that book was astonishing to me at that age I was already fat and I was aware of people's disgust and I was aware of my gym teacher's disdain and uh, that book was really rough in a lot of sections because of that
0: yeah yeah I remember watching the well, it mirrored sort of the experience of reading the book for me. I remember when it talked about Ben and when he was an adult and he was telling the story about how he lost his weight, um, yeah. I remember finding it so frustratingly um, like simple. Uh, yeah. Just this notion of just I ran and I ate salads, you know, and that's how they break it down in the movie too. Like I remember John Ritter, because I've seen the movie a dozen times, so I just always remember John Ritter just being like, he tells the story with a gym teacher, and he goes, you know, and I ate salads like crazy, and here I am, and I'm, and I remember even as a kid just going, it's not that simple, <laughs> like what, what <laughs> you know, like, like that's that just seems so so reductive, and I remember that that section was very striking to me, and you do mention that in your article as well. That's was that a section that stood out to you when you first read? It? it
1: absolutely yes not only because it's reductive about the nature of weight loss but also because it's so cruel everybody yeah. is cruel to ben and then ben is cruel to himself and that's considered an acceptable dimension of what it means to lose weight mm-hmm. i also i was a fat kid in the 90s which means i was dealing with the uh, the idea of putting children on diets which is a despicable and backward idea with mm-hmm. stuff like snack wells and yeah. lestra and you know better living through chemistry as far as never getting fat so i knew that the people around me were restricting their calories to a absurd an absurdly small number and Mm. they were exercising like crazy and they did not it turns out have a magical transformation like Ben Hanscom the famous architect who could have any woman that he (laughs) wanted now that he was thin right so it was just it was cognitive dissonance for me to see that a writer who was so smart who obviously understood so much about human nature who I admired so much could just be so off the mark on this particular thing
0: Yeah, yeah. So what was it that spurred you to write this piece uh, now in, in, you know, 2021?
1: I've been reexamining my relationship to King's work as his work goes through this renaissance. It's not common for a writer who was, you know, in his heyday in the 80s and 90s to all of a sudden get all of these new adaptations and all of this new... uh, attention. It's been really interesting to see, you know, Castle Rock as a series come together for the remake of it to come together for him to go back into screenwriting with Lisey's story, especially after the, the failures in his career for screenwriting, like they can't stop this guy. So since it's everywhere again, and since he's still alive and still producing as a living author, I examine my work in the context of the authors who made me who I am and looking at King was really hard. Yeah. I loved him and I loved his work. Like I love no other author. And I realized that I had not examined what was problematic or what was less than great in it because of those feelings. So it was, it it was a task to engage critically with work that I, I held above reproach for a long time that I just didn't think about. Like there are so many concepts that I, I know that I received as part of my education, both formally and informally that I just didn't apply so looking back and seeing how racist his work is, how complex his relationship to women is, how awful he is about the body was eye-opening.
0: Yeah. And so you published this with Fantasy Magazine. Um, mm. What what made you choose them in particular as the sort of vessel for this uh, piece?
1: I had submitted it to several other genre magazines first and they found that its tone was too argumentative and too critical of a living mm. writer, which mm. is touchy territory for a lot yeah. of places. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean... I am the sound of flies bu- buzzing above shit to Stephen King. He's never going to notice my <laughs> criticism. They needn't worry that they're going to incur his wrath. I know that he seeks out criticism of himself, but honestly, it's not going to happen. Sure. So I wasn't entirely sure what they were worried about, but it is, of course, their discretion to decide what to accept or reject. And I worked with the editor at Fantasy Magazine who was is- very interested in its tone and thought that it was thought provoking rather than needlessly attacking. And uh, they gave me the opportunity to run long, and it does run long. That essay is probably twice as long as most of the nonfiction that that magazine publishes. Mm-hmm. And I had people on Twitter telling me, well, What about this? What about this? Did you forget about this character? What about thinner? And <laughs> First There's, of all, you can't
0: name You can't do them all. If
1: <laughs> I had who done them all, this, this, this would be yeah. a thesis. This would be 10,000 fucking words long. Yeah. And second of all, uh, there are a lot of issues with Stephen King's treatment of the body that are primarily racist. And it's not my fucking lane. Somebody who's Roma should take him apart on thinner. It's not going to be me. Sure, I stuck yeah. with him. Yeah. I stuck with him where I knew I could stick with him.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And, and I, I think it's interesting you bring up, the sort of resistance to it as a living writer, um, because this is something, I mean, God, since I f- feel like Carrie, this is just something that's kind of surfaced organically on our podcast since the early days is, you know, because I think our thrust from the beginning of the podcast was not to just be a fan cast. Like we all, everyone on it grew up being Stephen King obsessives, but we all understood like that there's a lot to criticize here. And that's almost, you know, part of the fun of King to some degree is because he he seems less fussy about his writing um, and uh, then other writers, and so there's all these like weird little avenues he'll go down, and sometimes it's fun to explore him and sometimes it just gets kind of sad, which I think was the way that he wrote so grotesquely about various bodies, uh, but specifically fat bodies, and um, and so yeah. When your article came out, I was like, I'm surprised this sort of thing hadn't come out sooner. I'd seen a few people on Twitter talk sure. of you know maybe make mention of it, or and when I was doing some research for this interview, I you know I was looking back through Reddit and things like that, and there's been threads here and there and, and things, yeah. but very few bigger publications um, or writers have really tackled this topic. Um, and do you think it comes from that fear of, of Stephen King being somebody who is really online and really powerful?
1: I do think that that's part of it. I think that he is powerful. He is established and well-known and nobody wants to run afoul of somebody who's a a name that big in the business. It's also, it's bad form as a writer. Like I'm very familiar with how distasteful it is to get tagged in bad reviews or for people to drag you into arguments about your work that have nothing to do with you. It's just what they see in the work. He's also a nice guy. Yeah, he is. Yeah. (laughs) He's legitimately a good dude. And I, I, I don't criticize him to seek to offend him or to try to get his attention. It's because that it's work that I have to engage with because it's part of my writer DNA, mm-hmm. but like he's uh, you know, he's an old white liberal slash progressive and uh, he mostly does good things with his platform and with his money. And he's not, been me too and he's, you know, he seems to be, for all his flaws, a decent human being. So there isn't a lot of incentive to take a piece of him. And I think that there won't be a lot of meaningful criticism of King's work until. God forbid it comes anytime soon. He dies.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think that's the thing with King is that, and we always couch the, you know, we have a lot of people who hate our podcast because we are critical, but we always couch it in the sense that, you know, we wouldn't have devoted hundreds of episodes to him if we didn't love him, and we and we think that he is, you know, like he tweeted about our podcast once, and we lost our minds because we absolutely love him. But yeah, uh, but that's the thing is, um, is. There's almost an obliviousness, I think, to, because he writes so much. When he does veer into these areas uh, that do come across as cruel, it, it it's it's it just never seems like it comes from a place of maliciousness from him. Um, and I think that's you know that that's sort of the the tension I think with him is that he does seem great, but then you read certain things, and I mean. And there has been, and I want to talk to you about this in a little bit more, but there has been some awareness and development in his later work versus how he treats things like race and misogyny and things of that nature. But um, as we talked about in our Billy Summers episode and in our later episode, I believe, like when it comes to his sort of uh, his approach to writing about bodies, that's never really changed.
1: He has not moved at all. I would say that he's heard the criticism that people have made about his magical Negro characters or about his uh, his really skewed view on disability and often his exploitation of disability mm-hmm. for, um, a, a metaphor for something supernatural,
0: sure. but
1: I couldn't believe when I was doing my research for this essay that literally 1974 to 2021, there is no substantive or tonal or, or characteristic change at all in the way he writes about fat people. And like you said, I don't think it's malicious. I don't think there's any malice in him. I think he's a super softened old man.
0: Yeah.
1: But I think that he has an unexamined prejudice that he's allowed to sit in a fermenting corner of his mind for decade after decade after decade. And I can't tell you the number of people on Twitter who are like, you know, in on writing, he talks about this fat babysitter who used to torture him. Motherfucker, I know. I read the book.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: If all of us had our unprocessed trauma about who was mean to us when we were children, just simmering in the back of our fucking fiction, first of all, every woman writer would be burned at the stake for what truths we tell about men. Second of all, grow up, move on, learn something new. Every (laughs) fat woman in the world is not your mean babysitter,
0: Steve. I know. Um, one thing I thought was was compelling in your article is you you cited like he used the same description to describe two different uh, fat characters in two different stories, and yeah. so and that made me think about how there's almost something predictable about the way he treats his fat characters. I mean, I think sure, we've yeah. talked about on the pod like when one enters the scene, there's almost this dread. It's like oh, he's gonna There's beats. There's he's a gonna, series yeah, of beats. He's gonna yeah. go ham here. I was gonna ask you like what are uh, some of the patterns that you that you see in terms of how he does describe these characters?
1: Once a fat character is introduced, especially if the character is a woman, but uh, if there is feminizing fat to a male character also, the person will be either weak or malicious or both. The person will have grotesque personal habits. They will be unclean in some way. They will be unsightly in some way. They will open their mouths in a a helplessly cruel or uh, thoughtless way almost entirely. They'll be clumsy physically. There will be at least one extremely cruel descriptor of the body, swelling, coma-like, like like waves being an example that he spread out across multiple decades, which is incredible. And then he will mention that they're going to die. Yeah, There's a cardiac event somewhere in the future. There's a clogged artery. They're digging their grave with a knife and fork. It's death fats all over. And that happens no matter whether the character is absolutely central, Harold Emery Lauder, or absolutely tertiary, the nameless fat woman in Billy Summers.
0: Right, right. Yeah, and um, have you... I believe in the intro to uh, Thinner, he talks about his own experience where he felt like he was too heavy. And the book was in some ways inspired by that. Um, Do you think that his own personal fears about his own weight or his own insecurities have fed into this?
1: Absolutely, yes. I think that most fat hate is internalized phobia. It's the the fear that you will lose control of your body, that it will betray you, that it will give away your position to people who simply observe you on the street. That's uh, a real anxiety for most Americans and most people in the world. I also, frankly, I saw a lot of photos of him and Tabitha on their anniversary. And I realized that Tabitha is not a small woman and never has been. And I wonder if they seem to have had a long, fruitful, meaningful marriage that I'm sure is rooted in mutual respect. And also a lot of male authors have a habit of sublimating or, or externalizing their feelings about their wives' bodies uh, elsewhere. And I yeah. do wonder if that, or his mother, Ruth, also not a small woman. He may just be working that out. Like Joss Whedon is in the goddamn New York times.
0: Oh boy. That interview. uh um, yeah. <laughs> You also point out in your piece, and, you know, obviously I encourage everybody to go read it, um, but but you'd point out in your piece uh, that there's sort of a gendered quality to the way he writes about it. Um, could you elaborate on that a little bit? I thought that was one of the more interesting parts of the piece.
1: So initially, the series of essays that I've been writing, two of which have been published by Fantasy Magazine, is called All the King's Women, yeah. and I wanted to focus on the way that he writes women characters, which I think is really complex and sometimes incredibly liberating and rewarding. I think Dolores Claiborne is, is a fantastic female character. I think uh, Franny from The Stand is an excellent yeah. female character. And then sometimes they're just awful. And some of the most awful characters that he writes who are women are women who are fat. Yeah. So I, I looked hard at the relationship between gender and weight loss, specifically looking at fat characters like Harold Lauder or like some of the smaller characters. But Men who are fat in Stephen King's stories and novels are typically either irredeemable and put aside by the narrative or they get skinny and they get redeemed through that yeah. process of weight loss, which is a valorizing process. Uh, Harold daughter being an example and Ben Hanscom being another, there are no women in Stephen King's stories who achieve valor in this way. They are not permitted to lose weight and become good. They stay fat, they get fatter and it is their only defining quality. Yeah. I found that very interesting.
0: Yeah. What other areas of King have you been exploring, um, in sort of this, uh, ongoing column?
1: I looked at the identity of Beverly Marsh in it as the object of desire, as an object of sexuality, even as a barely pubescent child. I looked at the way she kind of gets robbed of agency, both in the novel and in both movie adaptations, because she's kind of Princess peached all over the place, even though she's the group's marksman. Yeah. I looked at the way he cheapens the experience of female characters by defining them through domestic violence, which I know is something he also has personal experience with, but
0: mm-hmm.
1: it ends up flattening a character a lot of the time. I've also written a little bit about the way he writes mothers. Yeah, uh, that's, a Wendy and the sh- <laughs> Ooh, that's a big one. It's a big one. Wendy <laughs> and the Shining being one of the best examples, Fran being another. And then I think... Misery is a lot of things, but one of the things I think it is is a dark parable of motherhood. I think Annie Wilkes uh, contains some of his most difficult and unfaceable uh, feelings about motherhood, and some of the things that he couldn't have put anywhere else.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I um, you uh, you cite several examples in the piece. Uh, mm-hmm. From across his work, what would you say is perhaps the most egregious uh example that you've encountered? And and what do you, I don't know, and like, like, uh, like, was it something that maybe you is it something from maybe something you read when you were younger? Like, what had the biggest impact on you personally?
1: That's a tough one because a lot of them are really bad, yeah. But I, I think it's the caps bracks from it, I think it's yeah. Sonia and Meyer caps yeah. They are. Two fully irredeemable characters, and they embody those two sides I was talking about: either a harridan or a weak, spineless person. You have uh, Sonia is the harridan and she's you know uh, Munchausen by proxy. She's overbearing, she's domineering, she's a terrible mother to Eddie. And then Myra, who he seeks out his mother's physical double, only to find someone who has very little self-respect, very little identity of her own, and ends up being the the weak, fat archetype. And so that. Eddie is bookended by these two fat women who somehow ruin and destroy his life, even though he's a grown ass man by the end, because the worst thing that can happen to a man is being stuck with a fat woman.
0: Yeah. 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 And she's so forgotten about in the narrative too. like after, you know, because nobody one's... even
1: calls her to tell her that Eddie's dead. Eddie Capsprack has a fucking widow and no one mentions it. There's nobody all these, there's all this Daniel Ma in that book. There's all those phone conversations that are like, are we forgetting each other? Did the magic really happen? How's your wife, Bill? Who the fuck called Eddie's wife? <laughs> nobody. That's who. Well, because she's not a real
0: character, right? She was not just there person. to sort of yeah. represent something. yeah. Just to Which
1: remind is... us that Eddie married his mother and that he had to get out.
0: I know. It's very frustrating. You you mm-hmm. mentioned a handful of authors who you say are building better on the foundations of what we grew up reading. Are there any specific books or stories that you direct people to that, um, that you know, if, if, if you have been put off by this side of King, like authors that you would recommend?
1: I have an advanced reader copy right here of a book that I'm so in love with. It's called The Supervillain's Guide to Being a Fat Kid by Matt Wallace. Okay. Uh, Matt, Matt Wallace is a spectacular writer and he writes a lot of uh, middle grade as well as adult fiction, but he is a big dude. He used to be a professional wrestler oh, wow. and he writes about fat people and, and people who are outsized to expectations and unruly bodies in a beautiful way. And The Supervillain's Guide to Being a Fat Kid specifically has like a, a fat kid makeover sequence that I think is going to benefit a lot of fat kids when they read it when they think about it's hard to be a person it's really hard to get people to see you the way you see yourself and we're all fine-tuning our image from a very early age trying to project who we are inside into something that is tangible and real and perceivable it is 10 times harder as a fat person to do that, not only because you're up against everybody's suppositions about you, but also because you have fewer options than anybody else, even fat people with money. I used to watch red carpet uh, reports on actresses who were anywhere near my size, Gabby Sidibe being a great example, and she would be wearing something I could buy that day, It didn't come from an atelier. It wasn't made by a designer. There are like five options if you're my size and going to a formal event, and we're all picking from the same pool. So this kid in this book undergoes the process of makeover and has to contend with how few options he has and how difficult it is to get people to perceive you in anything resembling a respectful manner. And I loved it for that. I'm also, frankly, a supervillain stan. So I love that (laughs) this kid is looking up to and writing to a supervillain in prison. Sure. Oh yeah. Fantastic book. Um, uh, I would also oh, recommend, uh, sorry, Jennifer Weiner, who is uh, uh, an author from the 90s, who's been doing a great job of it forever and ever. She changed a lot of people's lives with books like Good in Bed. And Kate in London, who's a, a more recent example of the same. Um, It is harder to find good examples in genre fiction, but not impossible. Uh, There's a book coming out this year called Manhunt by Gretchen Felker Martin that is splatterpunk post-apocalyptic. I got to read an advanced copy. It ruined me. I was howling at it. I took pictures of the pages to send to my friends. It is like nothing else I've ever read. I say this as a person who wrote a book about a gendered apocalypse, her book beats up my book for its fucking lunch money. So if you want to read about fat people surviving the end of the world and uh, doing science and fighting off terrible demons, read Manhunt.
0: Yeah, we're actually going to have Gretchen on the pod um, very soon. I think in March, maybe she's going to talk about the Dead Zone with us. Um, big what fan of her. What a fantastic idea! Yeah, yeah no, she's incredible. Just, I love her work, and, uh, <sighs> and yeah,
1: um, she's such a unique voice in horror. There's nobody yeah. doing what she's doing. I look up to her so much.
0: Yeah, yeah, I. Uh, I'm curious, too, how you'd say that in your work, you're conscious about, you know, building on that foundation. Like, what lessons would you say you've taken from King, both, um, you know, I, th- I think the things that you love about King, but also the things that you struggle with and how is that manifested in your own writing?
1: I think that King has a disconnect As true to life as his writing often is, I think that he does not sit with the descriptions of characters and ask himself, who in my life fits this description? So I think, I I don't write from a place of fear. I don't show my work to my parents. I write as though the people closest to me are dead, frankly. But also, I look at the way I describe people, especially the way I describe them physically, and I say, who in my life is this person? Imagine reading it out loud to them, imagine how they feel. It's okay to me if they feel seen, if they feel shaken, if they feel naked. In fact, that's what I want. If they feel I have done them a cruelty, I fucked it up.
0: Yeah. 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 That's great. Well, this was a, a lovely chat. And I I really, really, really enjoyed hearing this perspective. Again, it's something we've been discussing on the pod for a long time. But um, I really
1: appreciate I, that. I found it in episode after episode. You guys really look yeah. at it. And- very studiously and very openly. And I I dig that about The Loser's Club.
0: Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And it's nice to see articulate writing manifesting about it online as well. I feel like, you know, um, King is just, he's such a dominant force and he's so influential and his writing is so pervasive throughout um, I think just like the literary, uh, you know, world that I feel like even, even though he is still alive, it's like he takes on this larger presence. And I think it's good to tackle those critical elements of him. And, um, and it's tough, you know, because he is, he is somebody who is, who is present, you know, and, um, but I think, I don't know, I, from everything I know about him, I think he would appreciate these discussions as well. Um, How, you know, how much they're internalizing or not is up for debate, but I, I've noticed. Noticed that, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although I will say, um, when I used to work at the A V Club, he he tweeted he subtweeted us because uh, we didn't give Dr. Sleep a good review. And I was really <laughs> mad about that because I'm just like, come on man, I just reviewed the institute and gave it a B plus. So um No, that's so the thing. A- I
1: got a bunch of feedback from people who were like, You don't understand King, you don't get it, you're not a you're not a real oh, yeah, king fan. And I'm like, I'm not having this fight with you. Yeah,
0: <laughs> she's showing uh, me her tattoo. Um,
1: I have Han the tattoo, tattoo of Kai as a wheel, which yeah, uh, I think it. if you're on any Stephen King sub- this uh, <laughs> subredditor or forum, you know it. Uh,
0: yeah. I promise
1: you, I've done the reading. I, I, I did not come to, to destroy his reputation. I came to look at it honestly, which as a writer is what I want and how I want to be respected. And I'm paying him the same respect.
0: Exactly. I mean, I think it. I think it enriches the the experience of of engaging with the literary work when you look at it from all sides, which is really how we try to approach him on this podcast. And um and and yeah, your voice has been wonderful. And yeah, maybe we could get you back on some time to just talk King in general. Um, that would be awesome because this has been. I would be Yeah. Thank you. So thank you so much. And um yeah, where can people find you online if they want to follow you?
1: I'm on Twitter, on Instagram as Meg Elison. My website is megelison.com. My books are available wherever books are sold, which is mostly online right now. Sorry about that. Sure. And I also have a Patreon uh, where I publish fiction and offer writing advice uh, under, once again, Meg Elison.
0: Great. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Meg. This has been a blast.
1: Thank you for having me. I got some, hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. I got some hot I got some hot friends.
0: This is the end of our show, for now. We hope you enjoyed this production. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more